Oh yes, hello friends, welcome back to Modern Wisdom. As you may be able to hear, I am suffering the depths of Freshers' Flu right now. After 13 Freshers, it's not got any easier to deal with, I'm afraid. But the show goes on and the guests keep on coming. We've had a, a number of episodes recently that have been to do with history or politics, and the theme continues today with Graham Garrard talking about how to think politically. His new book, which I, I have to say, as someone who isn't that bothered about history or politics, I found really interesting. So yeah, today we get to learn about the history of politics, where it came from, why it's needed, and we get to talk about some really interesting writers and thinkers over the years. Aristotle, Karl Marx, Machiavelli, Plato, Socrates, Nietzsche. So yeah, if uh, if you've heard of these names but you haven't got a clue what they're about, then you're going to get to find out the, the cliff notes of them today. Uh, also, massive thank you to everyone who has been liking and sharing the podcast over the last few weeks. We are closing in very rapidly on 1 million downloads, which is going to be very exciting. We've got some awesome episodes coming up. Uh, Life Hacks 110, uh, Christoph popping in to talk about mental health and what it's like being a world-famous DJ touring all around the globe. So yeah, we've got some big ones coming in. But for now, please welcome Graham Garrard. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined by Graham Garrard, and we're going to learn how to think politically today, right? That's correct? Yes, indeed, yes. <laughs> welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you very much. Yes, uh, glad to be here. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. We've uh, been delving into politics and history a little bit recently on the show, so the listeners should be uh, in the mood for it, at least. Appetites will have been wet. So uh, to begin the discussion, in its purest form, what is politics and why do we need it? Well, politics is a way of managing human societies um, that uh, uses um, argument, debate, um, rhetoric, persuasion, um, but doesn't resort to use of force. Um, it's uniquely a human thing because we have language. Um, when, uh, when shooting breaks out, uh, then politics ends and you have war. Um, not everyone accepts that view, though there are lots of different conceptions of what politics is, but really, generally, um, that's what it is. Um, some of your viewers may be familiar with a quotation that's often used um, by a theorist of war, a German theorist of war named Clausewitz, who said that um, – uh, war is just uh, politics by other means. So that's a view of politics that I'm rejecting. Um, my view is that when uh, when uh, war begins, politics ends. It's not always clear where the boundary is between the two, but um, that's a view of politics that I have. Um, so politics is obviously important if you want to resolve differences um, in a way that doesn't resort to force. So um, all human societies involve some element of agreement and so, some element of disagreement. Um, if you didn't agree on anything, you wouldn't have a political community at all to start with, right? Um, but if you agreed on everything, you wouldn't need politics. 
So politics lies somewhere between those two extremes. Um, people agree and disagree. And so politics is really about how you manage those disagreements. Um, so it takes all kinds of different forms. So the one we're most familiar with is, is democracy, uh, although even that takes different forms. Um, but there are other forms of politics that aren't democratic. Indeed, um, most of human history um, has been uh, – characterized by forms of politics that are not democratic. In fact, um, the, the greatest democracy of them all, perhaps, was ancient Athens. And then for almost 2,500 years, there really wasn't any democracy to speak of. Um, then it was reborn in uh, sort of 18th century, 19th century. And now it's the dominant form in large parts of the world. Um, <clears throat> But, uh, you know, there are other forms. So in the particular form of democracy that we know best in the West, uh, in the modern West, um, we have institutions that we use to manage society, uh, to um, allow us to cooperate, to pursue our common ends, but also allow us to manage conflict and difference when we disagree so that we're not killing each other. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, there are other forms as well. So, um, you know, there's... Uh, authoritarian forms of politics and um, aristocratic forms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but in the general terms, as I said, it's really about managing uh, societies in a way that avoids uh, actual violence. I can't remember the first person who I heard said it, but um, the comment that you made about you've got discussion and you've got conflict. You have words mm. and you have fighting. Words and fists, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, those yeah. are really the only two ways that we can communicate with each other, right? It's either by talking about something and then when that doesn't happen, it goes into, it goes into fighting about something. There's not really, there's not really many other mechanisms that we have to play with. Um, not really. I mean, uh, they say that it's a sort of continuum and it's not always clear where one ends and the other begins. When, when does a war really start? It's hard to say sometimes. Um, but notwithstanding that, I think you're right. I think that uh, basically um, it's one or the other. Um, you can talk about it or you can fight about it. And that's... Yeah, that's, that's right. That's yeah. right. And of course, there are lots of different ways to talk about it. Um, mm -hmm. You can have a, a rational discussion, uh, an argument, try and persuade someone. But, you know, politics is also about other forms of, of language, um, rhetoric and uh, um, manipulation propaganda mm. um, so those are ways of trying to get people to your to take your view without actually um, using force yeah it's not it's not um, as if words can't be weaponized as well right it's just that it quite. doesn't involve punching someone in the face with them that's right exactly <laughs> exactly right um, yeah it can be it can be you know words can be highly manipulative and uh, can involve elements of, of threat as well. So that's why the, the boundary is as unclear. But um, uh, to give maybe one example, let's say, um, in, in this country, in Britain, um, when uh, in the 17th century, at the time of Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, um, the, uh, Parliament was at odds with the king. Uh, uh, king Charles I, and uh, you know they attempted uh, to uh, um, uh, convince each other of their respective views, and they used every manner of means. But in eventually, 
it didn't work and they resorted to um, uh, civil war. And uh, when when civil war begins, as it did uh, in this country in the 1640s, then, you know, you're, you're no longer really in politics. You're into a different realm mm. where you're not trying to persuade anyone. You're trying to coerce them through uh, through fighting. Um, but, of course, um, that has to end at some point and politics has to resume. So um, that, that would be an example. Yeah. The examples all through history where politics breaks down and, uh, and war begins. I get it, could, it. it could be civil war. It could be war between states as well. Mm. So how do politics and power relate to each other? Right. Um, so power is uh, an aspect of politics. It's a key aspect, a fundamental aspect. Um, power is um, always present in politics. It's present in other realms as well. It's not unique to politics. Um, all politics involves power, but not all power involves politics. <laughs> so um, uh, politics is, uh, as I said, is a way of dealing with power. Um, and so uh, people have conflicting interests, they have conflicting values, they have conflicting um, uh, ways of approaching things. And in a world of scarcity where not everyone can have everything they want, they have to resolve these differences. Um, and so this is what politics is essentially about. Um, so uh, obviously to achieve things, you need power. And um, as I say, where people disagree, then they want they they want access to power so they can achieve their own ends, mm. the ends the ends they prefer. Um, so poly, a large part of politics is is you know struggle over power because power is the means to attain these ends. Mm -hmm. But not not everyone agrees on the ends, and so they disagree about you know they fight over power. Mm. Um, so that's uh, that's a sort of key part of politics. But one of the points that I make in this book, uh, my co-author and I, is that that isn't. The whole story and indeed that's one of our main objectives in the book is to show that uh, power is key to politics but isn't everything and there is a certain view of politics which we um, reject which says that it is just about power and um, there's another dimension that's missing from that view you, you could call that view the Francis Urquhart view or the Frank Underwood view the, <laughs> the, the house the, you know the house of cards view yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe the Machiavellian view that mm -hmm. it's just a struggle it's just a struggle for power um, but uh, we think that leaves out a huge dimension and so um, there is a way of talking about politics in addition to that, because of course that's all true, that's a, a key part of an understanding politics, but this other dimension is missing from that view. And that dimension has to do with concepts of justice, um, ideas, um, values, and that sort of thing. And um, we think that a proper and complete view of politics has to include both. We refer to both power and to justice, to might and to right. And I think that's a, a more complete view and really a more human view of politics. Why do you think that power is a term which is thrown around so much at the moment in relation to politics? Um, 
Well, because I think when um, people really diverge, and the degree there's always divergence in politics uh, between people, what they want, their values, their beliefs. But there are sometimes moments in history when uh, the divergence becomes very acute, and um, and 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 fundamental differences open up. Um, and I think when that happens, uh, the the intensity of the struggle for power may increase. Mm. Because uh, there's so much at stake. Um, when there's a sort of lot of broad consensus, then um, uh, there's still some amount of conflict, not you know, non-violent conflict. But when the stakes go up, when there's major disagreement about fundamentals, then I think the contest becomes more intense. Passions are inflamed, and um, people's even people's sense of identity. Um, becomes a, uh, a matter of debate, as we've seen with Brexit. I, I was hoping I wouldn't mention Brexit this quickly. <laughs> too late, but, uh, too late. Yeah, You've already had to do late. it. Um, and so I think that may account for some of the reason that. Uh, and also, there is a um, there's a, there is um, a view now that uh, people don't trust politicians as much as they have in the past, and no no one's ever really trusted them that much. But <laughs> I think levels levels of trust have gone way down. This is borne out by by uh, surveys and things, mm-hmm. and um, I think in that case people become more jaded and more cynical and tend to see um, just the the power aspects of politics. It's, so in, that- it, it's, it's interesting what you say about the, the identity thing. So I've had a number of um, political commentators on recently. Andrew Doyle, who is the, the man behind the mm-hmm. Titania McGrath Twitter account, discussing, right. discussing that. Um, who's actually banned. She's on a seven-day ban at the moment. Uh, right. I, can't, I can't remember what for. Something else this time. Um, and yeah, the, the fact that you can no longer have a political ideology which isn't a comment on you as a person. It's mm. not that you have... Um, you are a small business owner, therefore you're looking after your interests. It's, oh no, hang on. You voted, you lean right. Therefore you yeah. are this sort of a person. And yeah. has it always been that way? Has it always been that your political leaning has then been taken as the foundation upon which the rest of your person is built? That, that has been more the norm in, in history, I think, okay. th- than what we've been used to until recently, mm-hmm. which which is more of an aberration. I, th- I think, I mean, sad as it is to say, I think that what's um, what you're referring to now, which is becoming more dominant, is uh, something of a return to, to the normal in history, where um, uh, people have been less tolerant, perhaps, um, of differences of opinion, where um, uh, people's political views have been more closely linked to fundamental things like religion, identity, and that sort of thing. I think if you look at history, you'll find that that's more the norm and that we've sort of gotten used to in recent history um, uh, that not being the case. But I think we're going back to that to some degree. And um, that's maybe what's causing the, the temperature to go up in political debate and the um, reluct- increasing reluctance in some quarters to tolerate differences of opinion. Mm. Um, so it genuinely is a little bit of a step backwards. Um, I think it is, myself. Um, uh, we tend to take it for granted because it's what we're used to, if you're beyond a certain age anyway, like me. Um, uh, but I think if you put it in the bigger perspective, uh, you see that it's that, that the abnormality is is 
the kind of um, uh, tolerance and civility that um, we, we had until fairly recently, which is now seems to be, seems to be declining. And I think evidence for this, I mean, there's lots of evidence for it, but um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, uh, one of the themes in the book is um, the, the risks that uh, political thinkers have taken through history um, in propounding their views, often controversial views. Um, so it starts with uh, Socrates, who was executed by the Athenians, which was a democracy after all, uh, fairly, by the standards of the time, fairly open society relatively speaking, and yet they put him to death, they forced him to drink hemlock for his political views, not for anything he did, but for what he said in, um, in public. Um, and uh, from that point on, uh, you see almost every major political thinker, um, right up until the 19th century, uh, suffering some kind of consequence for propounding their views. They either were killed or they were tortured, like Machiavelli was tortured, or they were forced into exile, um, like John Locke, for example, uh, or Karl Marx, um, or Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, so that gives you some idea of um, how intolerant the public sphere has tended to be in history. Mm -hmm. um, to the um, to people propounding views that are considered heterodox and and unconventional, um, and so um, it's really only from around the time of the Enlightenment and onwards um, that uh, people have taken a more relaxed view in the West towards this sort of thing. But um, so that one view is that that period which um, of, of greater tolerance of difference uh, differences of opinion is declining and we may be entering a, a period when when we're going back to the way it used to be mm. um, that's debatable it's a controversial point but um, uh, there's certainly some evidence for that yeah. it's bizarre isn't it that we've we're currently framing a slightly more uh, conflict-centered uh, environment for politics up against a unrepresentatively placid uh, period that we went through just before, but are taken with a slightly broader range view over the last 2,500 years or so, this is, it's just par for the course or more representative of what we've been used to. Uh, one of the uh, things that you mentioned there, Socrates dying, the story that you put in the book, which I absolutely loved, was when he got convicted um, by the court, he, in, he was convicted and before, before he was sentenced... That's right. He said, um, okay, that's that's great. Thank you for convicting me. Now, where's my reward? He considered himself <laughs> worthy right. of a reward, hadn't he, for the, the things right. he'd come yeah. up with. And I just thought, like, <laughs> I mean, it's such a ballsy move. Like, a crazy <laughs> ballsy move. And also, yes. did you say he's, he was grotesquely ugly as well? Well, um, oh, reports was, said he was grotesque. Yeah. Is that true? I've never heard that before. Well, we have no real way of knowing other than uh, through accounts, but he's reputed to have been um, uh, um, outwardly ugly but had a beautiful soul. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and the contrast is um, with his friend and lover, um, Alcibiades, um, who was a, a bad boy of the ancient world mm -hmm. and came to a sticky end as well. But he was uh, famously uh, 
externally beautiful, uh, handsome, but inwardly uh, had a corrupt soul. Mm. And so the way that um, uh, the two have been presented as sort of contrasts in in the writings of, say, Plato, um, then, uh, yeah, that, that's – but whether that's just a kind of uh, dramatization on Plato's part, hard to say. But yes, that's, that's how he's often been seen. Um, and it has a, a – it, he's making Plato's making a point there and emphasizing this because he wants us to see that what really matters is the, is the beauty of your soul, the purity of your soul, the goodness of your soul, not outward things. It's one of Plato's major themes. It's a theme that comes out in a lot of ancient thought, like Stoicism and things. Um, so uh, he, he's whether Socrates really was all that ugly or not. Um, <laughs> it, it's it. We'll never know, as I say, but it, it serves a point that uh, Plato's trying to make. Mm. What but, do you think? Uh, what do you think Donald Trump would? Uh, how, how would his speeches go if he started talking about the beauty of people's souls? <laughs> well, hard to imagine that uh, kind of uh, speech if he was making it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, um, I don't know that Trump would be able to reflect on that level uh, about such things. Uh, that said, I don't think very many politicians would be. Mm. I think the point would probably be lost on most of them. Mm. So the big question, you've covered 30, 30 uh, yes. individuals in this book. Yeah. You're out for dinner and you need to choose five of the individuals that you researched to be sat around the dinner table with you. Who are you going to choose and why? Right. Okay, that's a tricky one. Um, that's a hard choice to this make. This is like choosing your favorite uh, child, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sophie's choice, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sophie's, Sophie's choice for philosophers. Okay. Well, I mean, there will be, there'll be a personal aspect to it. Mm -hmm. One of them would have to be Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the Swiss philosopher of the 18th century, um, who uh, lived during the French Enlightenment um, and who uh, – inspired a lot of the French revolutionaries. They were, he was one of their biggest heroes, mainly because I've written about him and studied him so closely. So I have a, a personal interest in that. I, um, plus, he was a very inherently um, strange and interesting man. What was strange uh, about him? Um, he, he didn't fit into society, um, the, the polite society that he inhabited in, in 18th century Paris, the world of Voltaire and, and the other philosophes. Um, and uh, he rejected that whole world and um, he preferred to live a, a life of austerity. Um, uh, he also um, may have had some mental problems. <laughs> um, he had a tendency toward paranoia um, and um, – <clears throat> You know, he he was a difficult man in in, in most respects, um, both on principle and by virtue of his personality. Um, right? Who else would I be interested? in? Well, Socrates. I mean, Socrates Socrates features in the book, but of course, Socrates didn't write anything, mm -hmm. so it would really be Plato. Um, so I would have to include Plato as well. I think. Okay. Um, just because of the sheer um, uh, range and depth of his thought, he just wrote about everything, and he did it all brilliantly. I'm not really a play. I'm not a Platonist, but um, I mean, uh, five minutes with Plato, I'd give. Uh, I give a lot of. Uh, um, I sacrifice a lot to spend five the minutes. Table with wouldn't get bored, would they? You know, no. if, Pla if Plato sat on the table, there's always going to be something else to have a discussion about. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it would be inex- he's almost inexhaustible. Yeah. Um, so uh, that would certainly keep the conversation going. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think Rousseau would be a good conversationalist, but uh, I was going to say, what role do you think Rousseau would play? He'd he'd probably be smoking, wouldn't he? He'd be smoking <laughs> over the far side, complaining about complaining about the service yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah, he would. He'd be complaining about something anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, he would be disagreeing with people at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Um, uh, <clears throat> Who else would I include there? Well, um, I think uh, Thomas Hobbes uh, would would probably be on my short list of uh, of five. Mm. Um, again, for the power of his mind and his originality, um, uh, he had a very um, acute and uh, analytical mind, um, and had a very clear, if rather stark, view of the world. Um, I think that would be really interesting. Um, he had a, a huge range. I mean, he was famous initially for writing about mathematics and uh, geometry and things like that. Um, so he was a really um, uh, what we would call Renaissance man in terms of the range of his thought. And so I think he would be a fascinating person. And I think he would have a lot to say about the, the contemporary world as well. Mm, mm. What do you think he would think? I think he'd feel a lot of vindication. Because, <laughs> um, you know, he lived, he lived during the English Civil War and he wrote his masterpiece, Leviathan, um, in response to the English Civil War. It sort of traumatized him. And it, that's what prompted him. So he's a man who really saw conflict as the, as the human norm and um, thought that that was the most urgent and pressing issue. So I think he would look around the world today and see um, that he, he had been proven right. Or would it just be a big, I told you so? I think it would be a lot of that, yeah. I think to a large extent it would be, uh, um, uh, of course, people you know see what they want to see. Um, yeah. What they call confirmation bias involved, but um, uh, he would certainly be someone I think um, I'd like to spend time with, uh, mm-hmm. chat, chat to. Um, that's three thinkers. Um, uh, I think Karl Marx would have to be on that list as well. Uh, I'd be interested to meet him personally. <laughs> um, uh, it was a, a sort of larger-than-life figure and a gregarious and uh, um, bearish sort of man in many ways, um, larger-than-life. Um, but I, I say, th- what 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 is he actually like as a personality? Because I know a, a very shallow amount of his work. I don't actually know what what he was like as an individual. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, um, he he was uh, um, formidably intelligent, uh, uh, vastly well read, um, extremely broad ranging as a mind. Um, he was, uh, say, uh, a reputation as being a somewhat bearish and uh, cantankerous uh, as a personality, mm-hmm. but also quite gregarious, uh, disorderly. Um, he liked to drink and carouse with his his mates. Um, uh, uh, he used to go on pub crawls and uh, get up to, uh, to no good in that respect. Um, he was extremely unconventional. He was fearless. Um, he sacrificed an enormous amount for his views uh, and his family. Um, he's lived in great poverty uh, in exile in London um, and uh, so, therefore, did his family. So he's a very courageous man. He had the courage of his convictions. Um, so uh, a very big, complex personality that would be, I'm sure, fill a room and would probably dominate it too. Mm. Uh, and uh, could be really fierce, I think, as well. He'd probably uh, be. He'd probably be good at uh, make, bartering with the waitress to get the check down. 
I imagine he'd probably be once like the foods come at the end, he'd he'd have a reason as to why the, this shouldn't be so expensive and this shouldn't be so expensive. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. Well, he you know he had a, a tendency actually to be quite um, profligate with money. Um, his friend, yeah, his friend um, uh, Friedrich Engels kept him afloat financially, uh, so he could be a, an intellectual, full-time intellectual. <laughs> and um, he ended up spending quite a lot of money on, uh, on Karl Marx, who, who um, was very free in spending it. Uh, <laughs> his, his, uh, for someone who didn't have much, um, he, he spent it quite freely. Um, but uh, so I, I wonder if he would, but I mean, he, uh, you know, he was argumentative, so he would probably have put up a fight. Um, he once applied for a job with a railway. This is before British Rail existed, when the railways were private, and uh, um, he was turned down for the job. But um, one imagines if he had been accepted for that uh, as a conductor on a train, uh, what that might have been like. <laughs> you know, um, we might not have had uh, the 20th century; might not have looked the way it did. Yeah. But uh, one could imagine him, uh, you know, trying to collect the tickets of the of the well-to-do bourgeoisie on the trains, and mm. you know, telling them uh, uh, your ticket, to please, you uh, bourgeois pig, or something <laughs> like that. Um, <laughs> So uh, yeah. he, he was a sort of angry man, but he thought he had good reason to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I got you. So we've got four. Who's, who's your final guest going to be? Um, right. Well, that's now it gets really tough. Um, uh, um, let's, say, um, let's say Friedrich Nietzsche. Okay. Um, uh, that's difficult, you know, it's, uh, to choose. But, um, yeah, I would say Friedrich Nietzsche. A lot of – Nietzsche is very, very popular now. He wasn't in his own lifetime. He publishes – was, wasn't wasn't very well, well uh, circulated when he was alive? Not in the least. Uh, he um, His books didn't sell. He had to publish them himself. He had to finance the publishing of his own books um, in his own lifetime. Uh, books that now sell in the hundreds of thousands, um, he couldn't he couldn't uh, um, get published often and had to finance the publishing himself. He um, uh, his response to that was um, he said that. Uh, you know, if my books don't sell, don't blame me if there are no fish in the sea. <laughs> um, he said, uh, you know, people weren't ready for them yet. And in a sense, he's, he was right. He was a, sort of ahead of his time. Um, so uh, that's all changed. And now he looms very large. Uh, you go to sort of find his books in, uh, in airport uh, bookshops now. Um, libraries and bookshops grown under the weight of his books. So he, he touches a chord in a way. He resonates with readers now in a way that he never did in his own lifetime. Why do you think that is now? Really good question and very hard one to answer. Um, I think he offered a diagnosis um, about uh, the malaise of modernity, um, about the crisis of uh, Western civilization as he saw it the, um, that centers around the idea of the death of God, um, the loss of belief, the beliefs that really sustained Western civilization for um, 2,000 years um, were starting to be really questioned in a serious way in his own lifetime and that induced a sense of, um, of angst and he expressed that very well, very uh, powerfully in a way that a lot of others didn't um, and I think that um, his sense of the problem was very acute and very um, 
uh, profound and interesting. Um, the problem with Nietzsche is that the cure that he prescribed was much worse than the illness. Uh, the, the cure he prescribed was really quite a disaster. Um, it appealed to the Nazis, for example. Um, but I, so, I mean, there, there's not much to be learned from his cure, um, but from his diagnosis. I think he's one of the supreme diagnosticians of the, of, of the problems, the malaise and problems of um, sort of late modern civilization. Mm, yeah, I've got um, Douglas Murray on in, uh, in a couple of weeks. Right. Talk, talk, talking about his new book, which uh, I, I need to hurry up reading, which is over there. And um, very, he's delivering it. The, the book's hilarious in a, a very hard-hitting way. But um, one of the things that he brings up is exactly that, the fact that this the, the um, breakdown of the previous institutions that gave us social cohesion, that made yeah. us work together, that um, gave people a greater sense of purpose. I also recently went to go and see Alain de Botton, the guy mm -hmm. behind the School of Life, um, yeah. who... If anybody who is listening has the opportunity to go and see him live, unbelievably compelling public speaker. Absolutely fantastic. I saw Jordan Peterson last year, and I would be prepared to say that Alain was more engaging live, which is a, a real mm -hmm. credit to him. And um, Alain de Botton was talking about the same thing. He talked about the, the crisis of a meritocracy, the fact that we're disconnected from nature and from a sense of grandeur and all mm -hmm. of these sorts of things. Yeah. And um, it, is, it is interesting that as society modernizes and we have more convenience, better healthcare, people are living longer, we're not dying of diseases. Mm. There are these uh, unpredicted, unexpected side effects that mm. come with that. I also, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I was discussing a little while ago about um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And what I said was that uh, a Paleolithic ancestor who was out on the plains, who was struggling to fulfill the bottom, of that, mm -hmm. the foundation of that particular uh, pyramid, probably isn't too concerned about self-actualization or <laughs> about the existential dread of whether or not he is spending his life in the service of the greatest purpose that he can. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we flipped that particular pyramid on its head and all of those bottom things have been taken care of, I think that's where a lot of the existential dread comes in, that there is yeah. so much convenience at the bottom, the problem is now of abundance, not of scarcity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very much uh, Nietzsche's view. Um, so uh, Nietzsche attacked his own civilization for uh, being uh, a world of comfortable self-preservation, a really narrow, uh, sheepish world where most people's lives involved had no tension in them. Um, he he used the analogy of of a bow and arrow. He said that that the um, the, the bow of life in modern Western decadent civilization was flabby. It wasn't taut. Mm. There was no te no tension in the bow mm. because, as you say, a lot of the, the the things that had preoccupied humans through much of history, just getting by, um, having enough food to eat, shelter, those basic things had by the 19th century, by the late 19th century, um, for for a lot of people, um, had been um, satisfied perhaps not completely and for lots not, but um, for those for whom it had been satisfied, their minds, as you say, turn to other things. What's the purpose of life, the meaning of life? And uh, Nietzsche was very contemptuous of, uh, um, well, of the English in general <laughs> and of um, 
John Stuart Mill, who also features in the book, um, uh, who was a utilitarian who believed that happiness was the purpose of life. Um, and uh, Nietzsche said, no, it, it's not. Um, uh, life has other purposes. Uh, and one of his inspirations was um, the, the Greek tragic poets of the ancient world. So Nietzsche thought that one of the prices that we pay as a civilization for having um, satisfied so many of these um, more basic needs is um, a loss of that tension, a loss of tragedy, a loss of drama, a loss of struggle. And in the absence of those, we don't, we can't achieve anything great. Mm. And um, our society, our civilization won't produce, it's just a civilization of mediocrity, of, as I said, comfortable self-preservation. And that he thought that was an ignoble form of life. I think, and, I, th- I think that me and Nietzsche would probably have quite a bit to agree on. Um, Everything, even if you look at the individual level rather than a societal-wide level or a nation-state-wide level, <clears throat> a lot of the things that make us feel good involve periods of some sort of stress. So acupuncture mats, I was discussing this the other day, acupuncture mats, I don't know whether you've seen them, it's like a yoga mat, but it's got little spikes on it and you lie on it. And I asked one of my friends, because there's all sorts of different um, claims that are touted around on the internet about these sorts of things. And one of my mm-hmm. friends, I said, well, what, what mechanism do you think it's working on? Because he's a doctor, but he also thinks that they're effective. I was like, well, mm. what do you think it's doing? And he said, it's the same as everything else. It's the same as doing high intensity workout. It's the same as having a cold shower. It's the same mm. as going for a difficult run. It is a brief period of stress, which allows the body to uh, reset its equilibrium to a, a, a better state. Also, mm. it allows you to feel discomfort on your own terms. Mm. And that discomfort on your own terms then reframes other levels of discomfort. If you mm-hmm. run a half marathon last weekend, what is a minor disagreement with your colleague at work this week? You're mm-hmm. now seeing things within this new frame. And it's yeah. interesting that that life of, of comfort, uh, that flabby life of comfort, I think, <laughs> it encourages people to look at small problems with such fidelity that mm-hmm. they then begin to grow and grow and grow. And then this has been enabled by always on communication. And then this has been mm-hmm. exacerbated by echo chambers online, which are delivered by social media and frictionless. Yeah. You know, it, it, when you look at it through this lens of history, it really isn't that much of a surprise that we are coming up against these problems. And the fact that Nietzsche was able to see this with mm-hmm. such, uh, in, in so much advance is, uh, is pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, he was talking, I think, about the the the, the pathologies of um, of a of a as he saw it, decadent civilization, a rich, flabby, indulgent, decadent civilization, and um, he recoiled against that. Um, but uh, you know, there's a, a concept in psychology known as contrast effect, which says that um, that uh, that the human mind functions to some to a considerable degree on the basis of contrast that um, uh, and they've done experiments to support this uh, in, in social psychology that um, you know we understand things and we experience things by means of contrast so if you only lived in a uh, an environment that had one temperature you you wouldn't really um un- understand the concept of of those of different temperatures it's the contrast between them that gives meaning and definition to the experiences and i think that's part of what nietzsche was getting at the the basic insight here being that um you know a, a life lived only one way um is missing some key element 
to understanding and appreciating what's good about that life as well as what's missing. And so I think is a really fundamental insight in Nietzsche uh, at a psychological level, not just at the level of civilization, but um, he was a really acute psychologist, better psychologist than philosopher in my opinion. <laughs> um, he was a pretty sloppy philosopher, very self-indulgent philosopher, but he, he was a very brilliant psychologist. Uh, Sigmund Freud was uh, a believer that Nietzsche was a great psychologist. Um, and I think he understood this. I think he was expressing the same idea that um, you really need tension, contrast, drama to really um, uh, achieve things in life and also to understand and give meaning to things mm. and even, even to experience them fully and properly um you mentioned that machiavelli was suffered for his thoughts i i haven't i haven't heard that story would you be able to tell us about that yes he suffered quite horribly <laughs> um uh it wasn't uh well it was um, less for his thoughts than simply for his involvement in politics um he was a diplomat and a civil servant in his working life um until uh, you know in the renaissance in renaissance florence where he lived politics was was um, a nasty game and um if you backed the wrong side you suffered consequences if your side lost and his side did lose and um he was kicked out of office because he was on the losing side and then he was arrested and then he was um tortured and um and then he was exiled and um nearly killed in fact it's a big, um, and, it's a big laundry yeah. list of nasty things to have happen yeah. to you isn't it yeah well, he, he took it really well. Uh, he wrote some, <laughs> Fair play. You know, he, he wrote some amusing sonnets about his uh, being tortured. Um, uh, the bit that, that, um, that he ha found the most difficult of all those things was being exiled, being removed from politics, because he was a really a political animal. He loved politics. He loved being in the fray, in the center of the storm of politics, the vortex of politics. And he, he, he took the, the torture reasonably well, um, but he didn't take the uh, exile very well, the exile from politics. Um, then it was only after that that he wrote his, his books, the books for which he's most famous, The Prince, for example. Um, but uh, these weren't published in his lifetime, and um, they, were, uh, they became notorious later on. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the way politics was, was uh, uh, played. The game of politics was played back then. He understood that. He knew the rules of the game, and uh, he took it well. Mm, that's fun. So one of the things that you've uh, – has been a consistent theme throughout this discussion is a lot of the political thinkers, the scholars or the statesmen that we've been discussing – have been real intellectual powerhouses. A lot of them have had been able to draw from multiple different subject areas. Nietzsche not only doing philosophy, also doing psychology, mm -hmm. Aristotle, Socrates, yeah. these sort of guys. You've got um, people that were economists, master economists, and they mm -hmm. then funneled this ability into politics. One of the things that you brought up at the very beginning in the book, which I really loved, was talking about the difference between uh, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. I think, which were the, the three different, yeah. the three different levels that you had to, to the way that people put, uh, knowledge into action and the highest version of its delivery to reality being that of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Is that something that politicians should strive for? Because to me now, politics and a lot of the people that are listening will think, well, 
This all sounds well and good, but this is kind of a archaic, romantic view of what politicians were. They were these armchair philosophers who didn't actually have to deliver things. And now politicians, to me, appear much more like kings would have done perhaps in the past. Is mm. that, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I understand that criticism. Uh, they're wrong. <laughs> um, so, I mean, in the introduction to this book, we make a distinction between what we call uh, naive idealists and naive realists. And we try to position ourselves somewhere between the two. So a naive idealist would be someone of the type you've just described, who hasn't got a lot of experience, of real experience in politics, who's a bit otherworldly, has their both feet firmly planted in the clouds, as it were, um, and just sort of um, prescribes things with no real sense of reality. Um, so that's one extreme, and uh, you know we we don't think that's um, the right view. And the other extreme is is the what we call naive realism, the kind that I started with at the beginning, the Frank Underwood, the Francis Urquhart view, that ideas and values have really no part to play at all, that politics is simply about power and interest. Um, so we try to show that politics involves both aspects. It's power, but um, the idea that you can understand or be effective in political life with, without considering that there are other things involved than just power and interest, things like ideas and values and beliefs, um, I don't think is, makes people very effective politicians. Mm. And um, that's particularly the case when you, they come up against big problems. And if I can give a concrete example, uh, I think, a recent example, I think David Cameron is a good example of a kind of politician. He's in the news now for his memoirs, um, who, who didn't really have, as far as I could see, any really clear conception of the role that ideas and uh, um, values play in politics a kind of very pragmatic politician. Now, that's fine in good times, but when you're confronted with really deep divisions and problems of the kind that Brexit has opened up, let's say, um, or the rise of populism uh, in the West, let's say, um, then I think uh, you need to be able to understand that uh, people are interested in, in issues of identity, of, of goals and ends, and that these necessarily play a part in life. They may not always play the same part or a big part, but they're always there. There's no way around it. And um, I think that uh, that the the ideal view of politics it combines an appreciation of both. It's 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 a mixed form of uh, of uh, activity. It involves um, power and interest on one side, and ideas and values and and conceptions of justice and ends as well, means and ends. And um, so people who say, well, it's just naive to involve. Uh, you know, to try and move politics in the direction of, of, of the latter, of ideas and conceptions of justice, the, the ends and purposes of life. Um, I think that's wrong. I think that we, we need to rebalance our understanding of politics so that it involves both. Um, and that the politics, the, the quality of public debate would be improved. Um, the uh, 
um, understanding of political life would be improved. I think we've moved too far in the in the into the Frank Underwood view, mm. the, the the sort of extreme cynical view of politics. I couldn't and agree. Just, I couldn't, couldn't agree more there. That the fact that politicians, you know, we've I, I've given you the opportunity to sit down with five people who were involved in politics. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've you've struggled to choose those five, right? Because Absolutely. you're spoiled for choice. You've got these people Absolutely. who are, who are um, unbelievable thinkers and, and polymaths across all different areas of, yeah. of, of thought. Um, now, my conception of politicians isn't that of someone that I look up to with uh, as a paragon of wisdom. Right. I don't, I don't think, oh my God, like I can't wait to sit down with Boris Johnson. I bet he's got like such a, a unbelievable understanding of the inner nuances of, of the human, uh, human minds. Like, I don't, I don't think that. I, mm-hmm. I think that that lack of aspiration equates to a lack of respect on an individual level for a lot of people who look up at these politicians. And yeah, yeah that, that's definitely a, a mechanism that I can see working. Uh, in, interestingly, you mentioned about uh, David Cameron's memoirs. Did you see his morning routine? Have you seen this? No, I haven't. So we're big fans of morning routines on the show and we work quite hard to come up with something that we enjoy on a morning. So presumably it's something that he enjoyed, but he spoke about he would wake up on a morning and he would have mackerel on toast <laughs> and then sit in a room for two hours and just think. I was like, <laughs> David, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't want to critique it too much, right? You know, you did, you, you got yourself certainly further in the House of Commons than I ever have, but mackerel on toast and sitting in a room on your own for two hours i'm not i'm not convinced that sets you up for a fantastic day of politics but that, no uh, maybe and, that was and, where he fell off maybe it was the mackerel yeah right um <laughs> well i don't know about that um uh <clears throat> um maybe he should spend two hours reading rather than thinking um it doesn't seem to have produced a great uh, uh result in his case but mm. um you know i, I just just to your original question, I mean, I, we're not saying, I'm not saying that uh, I want philosophers, uh, philosophers to be kings, uh, rulers to be um, uh, thinkers. Um, I just think it's, it's not that I would expect the prime minister to be well-versed, although, uh, you know, in the classics uh, of political thought, although um, uh, Boris Johnson presumably has read some of these because he's a classicist himself. But um, – it's rather that I think that the tone and language of public debate that are, that surrounds politicians could be raised and should be raised. And um, that's one of the purposes of the book, to try and maybe to some tiny little degree um, show that uh, we can discuss these things in different terms and use different language. And um, I'm not naive enough to think for one second that, uh, you know, that, that these uh, active politicians can themselves become, uh, you know, political thinkers in any sense, but rather that the, the, the overall context within which politics happens could be elevated to some degree, as I say, rebalanced a little bit in favor of, um, uh, of, of trying to think at a slightly deeper level, maybe talk in more general terms and not always be obsessed and preoccupied with the horse race of, of politics. Well, certainly reading through How to Think Politically, I was struck by the fact that I, I have bizarrely i have more respect now for politicians overall i have more hope mm. i have a little bit more hope because there's some really good examples right of people yeah. of people who you would want to lead your nation or you would want to be at least contributing to the discourse mm-hmm. um you know it it's just a, a hope that we get some more characters that would make it into the pages of this book 
at some point in the not too distant future? Yeah, I mean, uh, with surprisingly few exceptions of those 30 uh, thinkers we profile, um, with surprisingly few exceptions, they all were involved to a greater or lesser extent in actual politics, you know, from Confucius right on to to the to the present um oh, very very few of them were pure intellectuals um surprisingly um they all were um uh, lived in or inhabited worlds where politics and ideas did overlap and um as i say most of them paid some kind of price for that um so uh you know they weren't just uh, completely um uh, isolated from reality. Um, they had a direct involvement in most cases, and that's part of where they derived their views about politics. Um, and so, uh, as I say, I, I, think, I, I think it's realistic to expect that um, uh, that people like that should have some role to play in public life, in shaping the debate, in reflecting upon it, and moving us, as you said, from information to knowledge to wisdom. Now, I don't realistically expect we'll ever get there um, in the actual practice of politics, but I do think there's scope for improving and elevating the tone of debate um, somewhat. Um. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. Well, anyway, Graham, it's been absolutely fantastic to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, the link to How to Think Politically will be in the show notes below. Anybody who is interested to go and check it out, it will be linked there, plus any other resources that we've gone through today. Graham, it's been a real, uh, a real interesting insight into the, the past of politics. I hope that we've open some people's eyes to a, yeah. a, a world of thinkers that are a little bit different to what, what they're seeing at the moment. Um, if only that, then that uh, was well worth the time, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.